Hello and welcome to Judgment Day, the film podcast that pits the films you're passionate about against Terminator 2. I'm your host, Michael Carroll. Our subject today is the old New York City, and my guest is Turner Cody. Hi, how are you? Hello. Hi. Um, I, uh, I came across your music um, a few years ago on Spotify. I, I became a, a, a huge fan awesome. uh, right away. Actually, do you want to give us just a little bit, uh, a little bit of history about yourself and about your music? Sure. Um, I mean, I've been, you know, writing songs and recording for like 20 years now. Um, I've spent most of my time in New York City and came up in the what's called the anti-folk scene. We all kind of hung out this open mic in the East Village called the Sidewalk Cafe. And um, rest other, in power. Right, right. Yeah. Um, along with other notables as Adam Green, Jeffrey Lewis, Moldy Peaches and uh, Diane Cluck. And I, uh, yeah, I toured Europe a bunch and I've just, you know, I've been making records for a long time, writing songs and probably made about 15, 16 records and just trying to keep it going, you know? Yeah. You have, you have a new album coming out? Yeah. Uh, in June, it's called Friends in High Places. I recorded it in Belgium with uh, some Belgian musicians and it's out on Capitan Records, which my friends started. Yeah, you're, this is, you're, it's, uh, I think you, I saw that it's um, Turner Cody and the, and the, the soldiers, soldiers of love. Of love. Yeah. yeah. Who, are, who are these guys? They're the, the Belgians. They, okay. um, they, they're a band, they back up another guy named Nicolas Mijot who produced the record. And so they're his backing band. And then, so they kind of backed me up, um, you know, kind of like the band and Bob Dylan. I'm, I'm the Bob Dylan in that, you know, yeah. but uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, Nico, Nicholas, he produced the record and it's, um, it's kind of a departure, a little bit of a tar- departure for me. It's a little bit of a new sound, a new take on, on uh, the Turner Cody, um, you know, body of work, but, but I'm very excited about it and, you know, look forward to people hearing it and everything. Yeah. What, what can, can, can I ask you a little bit more about that? Like, what did you do? Like, is it just working with a band that's been different for you? No, I mean, it really is like working with a producer who had a distinct vision of how he wanted to reframe um, my music. You know, mm-hmm. I'd always kind of, I'd never really worked with a producer per se. I collaborated with the guys who were recording my music sometimes. And I was always kind of a, a producer De, de facto producer but I, I'm not really much of a um, I, I don't really think of approach music in that way I'm just kind of a songwriter so I would always just kind of you know get guys together as a band and go into the studio that's the way I've been doing it for the last 10 plus years um, you know more of the like you know folk rock folk music approach you just kind of throw stuff at the wall see what sticks approach um, so I, I yeah and, and I so I, I, I never really thought of it as, I never approached recording as a, you know, a, a sonic experiment. I just mm-hmm. don't have the, the tools to do that. Um, but, but Nico, um, you know, he, he approaches music more in that way. And I think he had uh, an idea of how to, you know, keep, you know, keep the Turner Cody vibe, but, but maybe, um, you know, blend some other references or other uh, influences in with it. And, um, and yeah, and it worked great and it was super fun to do. And I was, I'd never worked quite in that way. And it was great not having to be the, the guy in charge to kind of like, <laughs> just, you know, th- those guys all were so good at doing what they did and they're comfortable doing it. And so I was able to focus just on the songwriting and the, the performing of the vocals and stuff. It was great. 
Well, that's, that's so interesting because, you know, uh, uh, your albums, you know, they all tend to have like a very unique uh, sound to them. So um, that this is interesting to me hearing this um, just because, like I said, you know, like just the last couple of years, like I said, I've been kind of getting to know uh, your albums one by one. It's actually great when I, when I, when I kind of stumbled across you because it was like, um, it felt like being a teenager again, where like you discover yeah. like this whole, like, Oh, there's this person who has this whole body of work that like I had never heard of before. And I've been, you know, I've been getting to do right. anything where I explored. So, you know, and you have, that's uh, cool, man. yeah. That's great to hear. I appreciate that. Well, I got more compliments if I can give them. Just to, bring them on. Bring them on. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was absolutely the thing. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm a little like, I don't know, I'm very excited to talk to you about this because it was absolutely the thing where, um, I kind of discovered you and, uh, the music had the, um, it was in the tradition of like, uh, Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan mm-hmm. without like, um, affecting, you know, any of that mm-hmm. stuff. It was yep. like, you, you were your own sure. voice, you know, in it, but, mm-hmm. um, right. Yeah. I'm doing the thing where I'm just like yeah. giving compliments. <laughs> no, no. I, well, I, I think that's kind of, you know, I see that the great thing about songwriting and storytelling is mm-hmm. that, um, you know, if, if you're, a, if, if you're telling a story, it's always going to be unique. And if you, if you're really telling your own story, um, you may be influenced by other songwriters, other storytellers, but, but, um, it's easy to avoid, um, being a copycat because if, if you're really telling your own story, that's always going to be yours. So, you know, it's, it's similar to, to, to novelists, um, just because someone writes a book that, that has certain, uh, aesthetic similarities to another one. We, we don't think of novelists copying other novelists simply because they're telling stories. Right. In other words, so, you know, so what got me into songwriting, I mean, I love Dylan and Cohen, but I, I never wanted to emulate Dylan in the, uh, in, in, in form necessarily. I, I never wanted to think people to think I sounded necessarily like him at, he's not really someone that you'd want to copy. It wouldn't, you wouldn't really get very far doing that Yeah, because <laughs> you know, who can copy that, but, but you can draw inspiration from the, um, the, the songwriting storytelling uh, technique and, and learn how to tell your own stories and write your own poetry or whatever. So, yeah. And it, it I, it's, I think for me, the, the highest art form, it's the one that I kind of gravitated to the most. So I chose to devote my life to it. <laughs> yeah you um well actually let's jump into the subject here a little bit um yeah. uh they uh so this was actually a fun one when i reached out to you a few months ago and um you you, you were like yeah sure let's what, what kind of movies do you want to talk about and i had this thing where i'm like oh boy i don't know you <laughs> i just right, read right. through your music right so it was actually really fun like uh, kind of going back and forth on like figuring this out and and um I, what we sort of landed on was doing movies about uh, old New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about the French connection, summer of Sam and inside Lewin Davis. Um, you, uh, you are uh, from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. Sorry to hear. I am. Yeah. Fan. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I got out of there as quickly as I could. <laughs> it's it was it's it's always been that thing. So I have I have a funny relationship because I came to Massachusetts when I was like ten, and I had already like moved like all the time when I was younger. Okay. Uh, like I I didn't live in this in the same house for like longer than two years, and then I was in Massachusetts 
for the rest of high school. And oh, people Lord. were just, yeah, people were just like, oh, yeah, it's great. What are you talking about? This is the greatest. This is uh, the, the, why, why would you where, have where were you? I was in Concord. Oh, okay. I, the, yeah. 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 I, 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 grew up, I grew up in Winchester. Winchester. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm well aware of Concord. Yep. 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 Nice place to visit. Wouldn't want to be a kid there. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not into like dissing States. That's not my, no, you're not right. my MO, but it, it, it you know, it, it, it's a beautiful place. New England's, I, there's a lot I like about New England. My, my parents had a house in New Hampshire when we grew up and I, I still have fond memories of New Hampshire. My parents still live, you know, in, in a, a town not far from Concord actually. Oh, yeah. um, and, and, you know, it, there's so there, it's nice. We were there in the fall and it's beautiful. And yeah. It's, yeah. But it is nice to all, visit. It's nice to visit. It, you yeah. know, I think it's, it's it, like all places. It, it, it's, if it speaks to you, then it's, then it's you. And but for me, it, it did not, it never spoke to me. I never felt, I never felt a connection to it. I, right. I was told people that I was actually conceived in New York because my parents lived there in the late seventies. Uh. So I, <laughs> Uh, but no, so uh, yeah, I, I moved, I, I left when I was 18. Um, I left after high school. I, I moved in with my girlfriend in the West Village. And that was kind of, I lived almost for exactly 20 years in, in New York. In, in the West Village? Where, is that the whole time or where? No, no, no. I, I, I was living with her and her parents for the first few months and then we broke up. And then I was basically like couch surfing for a while and you know, living with girlfriend type thing. And then I actually went to college briefly for a, a semester, um, dropped out on 9-11, oh. moved back to New York. And then I lived, you know, I lived in Bensonhurst for a while. Um, I lived, uh, and then after that, I lived in Williamsburg for a long time and ended up moving to Queens. So the last 10 years were, I lived in Queens, Ridgewood. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, that's a pretty good uh, cross-section of, of, uh, the city yeah yeah right and i i lived in the east village in the early 2000s um -hmm. and i mean i like to say that i i mean i like to think that i i I got a little glimpse of the city before 9-11 a little bit of the the 90s new york i remember avenue way back in the day before things changed for real i mean everyone has their own definition of when things changed in the city. Mm-hmm. but i i like to think that i saw at least a glimpse of of what the city was in that period of of the 90s so i am I'm, I'm happy for that speaking of the way new york was right. um uh we were on to talk about the french connection here and, and that was that was very interesting uh suggestion i hadn't seen that uh film probably since i was in high school what what okay. was your relationship to the french connection um well yeah i mean it's it, I, french connection by top in my top five mm-hmm. so i mean it's I, I think it's it for me it's like typifies 70s cinema uh, but they it, it it i think you need to have the conversation of you know dog day afternoon and serpico and even uh, I, I just watched panic and neil park have you seen that no, I haven't. It's been oh, on the list. Yeah. Fantastic. I found it on really? DVD. Yeah, I found cool. it on DVD. I was super excited. It's great. It's great. And Joan Didion actually wrote the script, which is <laughs> people who don't know. But, um, but yeah, so I, 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 th- I like to think of French Connection as just maybe the most visually beautiful movie for me that, that, I, that exists. And yeah. I, I think there's that specific kind of beauty that only New York City has, and it captures that. Um, 
I think as as good as any other '70s film or any other New York movie. It's it's very much a, you know, I'm not a film scholar. I think of myself as an amateur film mm-hmm. fan, but um, I you know I don't know if it's what you'd call cinema verite, but it's very much about capturing the um, the, the the picture and the um, you know the the, the physical um, the physical nature of New York. The, the way in which you, you, the, the specific kind of cold that you feel that they that they depict, you know, when they're standing outside casing the restaurant, and eating the pizza, and yeah. he takes the coffee and he pours it out because it's you know shit New York coffee, and there's yeah. there's so much there's so so evocative, so many and right across the street. There's like a really fancy place where people yeah, and are getting served. They're yeah. in there, and and there's also just that great. You know, something you get with Woody Allen as well, just that great, what's such a great thing about New York is just that it, it, it's these time capsules where you can, you know, these moments that are set in time that where you can really look into what the city was 30, 40, 50 years ago. And then to be able to recognize, you know, certain blocks and, and see that, you know, that restaurant that they go to is long gone. But yeah. I looked, I read, I, you know, Wikipedia did after I, uh, went, I mean, I've seen the movie many times, mm-hmm. but you know, it, 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 it was one of the kind of fancy restaurants of the time. And it's funny that it's like quintessentially French cuisine. And that's what like rich people ate at the time was this, you know, escargot type food. So like whatever the equivalent of foodies in the early seventies would have gone to a place like that. It's very kind of formal dining and the dichotomy between the, the warmth that you know you get with this guys eating this elaborate three four course meal with then Gene Hackman outside casing <laughs> the joint. I mean, it's just that scene is you know I could just watch that scene over and over again, and I love that one. Just and on the just on the yeah. off chance that people are listening, uh, I don't think the film needs too much of an introduction, but it's it's a cop film, nineteen seventy one. It's uh, starring Gene Hackman and. Is it Roy Schneider? Roy Schneider. Schneider. I always get that wrong. Uh, directed by William Friedkin, one best picture. I don't know. I don't think that needs to. Famous car chase scene. Um, yep. And um, actually, that's. That, I was going to ask you, did you did you drive when you were living in New York much? Yeah, well, actually, the last 10, almost 10 years that I lived in New York, I delivered pizza. Okay. Yeah, I worked for Vinny's Pizza in Williamsburg and, and Greenpoint. Ah, so Okay. I, for the first 10 years, no, no I never drive, but I, I became a New York driver for a long time. I spent lots of time out on the, you know, out on the road and, you know, gridlock traffic and, you know, under the VQE and the whole deal. Mm-hmm. I, I, I never, I never got quite as far as uh, doing the car chase that they did in, in French Connection as, as, as a driver in New York. Thank you. Really? That's interesting. Believe I, it or not. Believe I, it or not. I, I'll be honest with you because I, I tend to drive a lot. I've certainly been driving a lot more the last year, but um, I uh, I was watching that car chase scene the other day, and I was thinking, you know, until he like sideswipes Hackman, until that one truck sideswipes Hackman, right. that that like I could definitely see that just being like the way I you know I drive with like a certain like like flow of you know like if the traffic's sure. like at a certain like volume. You know, it's just like sometimes you have to just go around people because they're taking too long, you know. True, <laughs> true. And I got to say, after I've moved to, to St. Louis, I, I, I actually find that people uh, are, there's a certain kind of safety about driving New York. Either the, even though you take like these, what seem to be big risks, 
mm-hmm. you're no one's really going that fast. So it, you know, whereas in kind of a more open city where there are fewer people, people really drive fast. And, and there's also the, the right on red thing is I found um, it, it may be a pain in the ass to, to New Yorkers to have to, you know, sit out the red light, but it's, yeah. it, it makes for like, a, I think it's more civilized. I miss, I miss <laughs> the right on, the no right on red. It's very yeah. confusing in St. Louis because you never know whether you can walk or not. I don't know. But um, no, I, I think there's something to, there's a certain kind of like collective stability or, or, or you know, a, a, a controlled chaos to driving in New York. But, mm, you know, yeah. that I'd appreciate. But, but, but the really, the, the, it's not the driving that's the problem in the city. Even with the traffic, it's, it's the parking. I mean, parking yeah. will kill you. And I think parking will, you know, has probably taken years off my life. Looking for parking spots is, yeah. is the ultimate existential torture. Uh, let's see. I don't know if you could hear me just now, but uh, I was kind of going through the rest of my notes on, on French Connection. But um, uh, did, have you read the book that it's based on? No. So it's, it's written by this guy named Robin Moore, who is from Concord, Massachusetts. Oh, interesting. Uh, interesting. Yeah, he also wrote like The Green Berets, Okay. Uh, which was like the like John Wayne world uh, Viet- the John Wayne Vietnam movie. Okay, yeah, it was so funny because like I, I think I got it in my head uh, just as a, like a, a shitty young person that like um, this is just like a movie by like a, a like a, like an exaggerated vision of New York. But um, uh, I think that somewhere in the like from the book to the movie adaptation, like uh, like I said, it, it got more gritty. Um, yeah. Did you see it before you moved to New York? That's, I guess that's one of the things I want to, I want to ask about. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Because I, I, I remember like Serpico was a movie that I watched when I was a kid. And like there's a third act plot twist where it's like he gets demoted and he has to work in the Bronx. And to me, right. being like a suburbanite, I was like, I don't know what that means. Like, is that, is that a bad deal? Up until, you know, the time that I had moved to New York or it really got serious about watching movies in any kind of, uh, art, you know, appreciating them from an artistic point of view. So I don't, I don't remember having seen any of this stuff before I had moved. So anyway, so the the uh, the, the couple that they they trail that um, Hackman and Scheider trail from the Copa, right? Mm-hmm. When they go back to that their little store or whatever. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so that's in Ridgewood, and it's and and <laughs> and it's the, and it's like a Mexican restaurant now. And I was watching the movie, and I I realized that it's the shot right down Wyckoff Avenue with the city in the background. And I I was like I I recognize that. Hi, are we back? We're back. Okay. Hopefully this, hopefully this is the end of our issues. Well, mm, we'll, you know. we'll save this for Terminator 2, but, um, you know, it, there's nothing to be really prideful about, like, mastering this technology shit. So you know. we're, all, we're all at the, at the whim of this now. It's yeah. just, uh, you know, it's, it is what it is. It drives me crazy. I'm not made for, I'm not really made for life in the 21st century. I'm, <laughs> I'm really in adept at all of it uh i just uh i'm, I'm a tactile guy well that's but why i want to have you, you on do? that's why you're so that's part of what makes you so interesting man right right well it's ironic we're discussing 70s gritty cinema 
Yeah. And, uh, and, and zoom fails us. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're just, Movies with you know. phone booths. Uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. I was saying, I was, I was saying about that location that, 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 you know, that in the movie, yeah. yeah. When they, when they trail the, the, the couple back to their, their little diner, it, it takes place in Ridgewood in the movie. There's actually a quick, um, there's a quick line that the guy who was the real Popeye Doyle who stars in the movie, mm-hmm. he, he says something at oh, one really? point of like, you know, yeah, yeah. The guy who is the cop, their boss, okay. um, you know, the, he's, he's the, actually the real Popeye Doyle apparently, or, or the Popeye character is based on him. So yeah. he, he's playing, he's playing himself, but he says something at some point about, um, you know, I'm not paying you guys to go chasing couples around Bridgewood or something like mm-hmm. that. It's a, it's a quick line. But so they actually shot in, in the real Ridgewood and, and I'd seen the movie many times until I realized that this particular view down Wyckoff Avenue is one I recognized. And I was able to kind of freeze frame and, and look at the street signs and realize that it's actually, you know, what blocks the actual um, store that these, that this diner that this couple have is, is on what actual storefront it is. And it's one of two, which are there now. One of them is a Mexican restaurant. The other one I think is a laundromat. But I wanted to go in once and be like, you know, do you know that your storefront is stars in the movie French <laughs> Connection? But they probably would have looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah, so, I know. Um, but but anyway. Dog Day, I had that. When, when I first moved to, to Brooklyn, I was on 15th and 5th, back when you could graduate from a, a, a Midwest college and get a, like, for me, like you were talking about the last glimpses of pre-9-11, I got the last glimpses of, right. like, uh, so where you could get something like that in Park Slope. And I remember, like, Dog Day was a movie I just watched over and over again. And, like, mm-hmm. literally just one day on my couch, um, like, getting curious about where they shot that. And I realized that's literally just up the block from where I am right now. And it broke my heart to go up there and see it's a completely different building, but you could also like when, when right. these movies are like in your head, it's like this wild thing to yeah. like go up and see. That's funny. I always assumed that that location was like way out and you know, the far reaches of Brooklyn or something Yeah, for a dog that I didn't realize it was Park Slope. That's funny. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a different neighborhood, you know, than, than it was back yeah. then. I think anybody, anybody would tell you that. You know, I think that, you know, as a, as a way of maybe kind of creating a through line between New York cinema and New York itself and my experience yeah. there, that, you know, it, it's a, it's a um, you know, obviously you, to call it a unique place is understatement, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, there, there's a New York that one, that one loves and falls in love with and, and maybe is, is always trying to get back to. And, and for me personally, once you, once you find yourself on the outside of that kind of love, it, 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 it never comes back. It's, it's like a relationship and at times a dysfunctional one where you hang on to it in, and, you know, you know, you hang on to it and then you, you hang on to it just, just to hang on to it. And then yeah. once you realize that it's never, you're never going to get back that moment, you put it behind you. Once it's in the rear view mirror, it, it's gone. And I've only, I've been, for yeah, me personally, like, yeah, but once, once you break up it, it, uh, it's, you, there's whole, not a whole lot that, that you miss. And that's my experience personally. It's just like, I'm glad to have it behind me. You know, because it went from it went from being a love affair to being love hate to just like misery, looking for parking. <laughs> you know what I mean, Matt? And you know, yeah. once the sidewalk wasn't there anymore, and 
And and I, I think that there is a thing about, you know, there is something to the average New Yorker's experience is, is something of like a heroin addict or something, you know, always trying get, to get back to that first high. And your relationship to the city becomes somewhat of an abstraction. City mm-hmm. itself becomes an abstraction. You know, I think about, you know, after the sidewalk left it, it occurred to me that, you know, I, it, cause there are years when I wouldn't go there very much and, you know, but, but that, that once that was gone, once that physical location was gone, that, that I could define somehow weave my own narrative into my existence in New York through this physical place. Once it was gone, I was just another kind of schmuck, you know, driving a car around the city. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a common thing is, you know, people might have a bar that they always go to or, a, you know, a restaurant and they, and they somehow, they, they somehow create some meta narrative around themselves in this particular place. And that gives their, their New York city identity, some kind of meaning, mm-hmm. but, but really they're just a person going to a bar and, and then inevitably that bar goes away. And then, and then in a way the city always kind of like, kind of gets the upper hand on you you know you're, you're always kind of like you know a little bit like a casino or something like the house is always going to come up on top and you're always you know always kind of at the end of the day and i you know i don't mean to be cynical about this great city but that's always kind of you know there, there's unique kind of ways in which it can you can really maximize one's you know uh experience there and i think if you're a rich person if you're young person and i think that's you know, it. it i think those are the two things <laughs> the only one i would add would be a native i think yes, that the native yes. new yorkers that was, you know I was like trying to work you know my mom you know and and that's you know like that's to getting to to dog to a uh, summer of sam like the, yeah. the part of new york which i came to actually really love in all of my last few years there was like the new york of the outer boroughs mm-hmm. where it's like you know yeah it's like it's my you know my parents own the house and, or, you know, I'm, I inherit that property and, you know, I'm a Yankees fan and screw you, you know, yeah, yeah. I don't care if you're a musician, you know what I mean? Like I was here before you and I'll be here after you're gone. So uh, that's, that's part of New York. I actually came to really appreciate, but. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, um, we, we actually, uh, my, my wife and I had um, a really funny weekend last weekend. We went to, yeah, we went to this weird part of New York called Manhattan uh and we had to take a bridge right. to go over there and everything and and uh we we had a nice day out and and you know ate outside and everything and it was just the funniest thing where like you know i used to do a lot of work out there i used to drive a lot i used to drive box trucks mm-hmm. out there, uh and just doing production work on films in my first few years and i was just like you know this area that we're in um it's it, there's no there, there's nobody who's living here that that isn't like extremely well to do so it's just it's very yeah that, yeah. that part can be very alienating and it's funny because when yeah. you first land in manhattan it feels like you are like why don't i spend more time here you know and then you're like well right unless i'm here to like buy stuff you know it doesn't uh right or or drink but yeah sure which i was that was always something that i was uh willing to do and yeah. But I, you know, I would always try to go into the city, into, into Manhattan when I intermittently, I, you know, one of the things that I do miss about New York is walking over the Williamsburg Bridge, something I always love to do. And I, I, you know, I have a soft spot for the Upper East Side as, you know, as crazy as it sounds, there's some yeah. kind of like timelessness about the kind of money, you know, that, that to me is like, you know, the, the, um, 
the eternal New York is this kind of like immovable um, monolith that's the Upper East Side, just this like this kind of wealth, <laughs> which is which is that'll be the you know, last thing is, standing. It, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, and those buildings, everything's so sturdy, and that you have this sense, of, as opposed to Williamsburg, which is kind of like Euro Euro trash money or whatever, and this kind of like there's an impermanence of the, all these buildings that would go up in Williamsburg and these kind of schlocky architecture, and, and then you go to the Upper East Side, and there's just this that kind of solidness of of it, um, and that kind of old fashioned um, you know sense of upper class. Which you know, obviously, you can you can talk a lot of shit on it, but there's something I always appreciated about it, and um, you know, just like the the Upper East Side, you know, the, the multi-millionaire going to the bodega and in his bathrobe type thing, you know, it's it's its own it's its own little village, and, and you know, you got the Mets and and then, you know, back to back to the French Connection. There's a great scene, and you know, what's his name's place? Um, I forget the the name of the gangster who the French guys yeah. are um, trying to do the deal with, he, he has his, uh, his place is, is right across from the Met. So that's another kind of uh, landmark that's in the French connection. It, it's got a great facade and um, it's right. You can find it if you're in that neighborhood. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was literally like doing the thing where, where I was watching the movie and I was like, if I start, yeah if i if i start like like taking out my phone and looking at like where all these filming locations are like uh, I, i'm meaning right. to go back to it but like the last time i watched it the other day i was just trying to like like just like uh enjoy it for the experience but yeah like um, right and yeah once, and it, once it's in your down, bones then you can do that but yeah totally yeah and i think that i mean the you know to get back to the movie, yeah. the reason I think it's you know the great great New York New York City seventies film is is that the city is so much a character in the movie. Yeah. Um. You know. You don't not like Dog Day Afternoon, even Serpico, which is also a great one, mm-hmm. where where you're you're also involved in the characters' lives and the characters' stories. The French Connection is very much an objective view of a, uh, you know, the the actual story itself is not so essential it's really just a you know old-fashioned cop cop drug bust film but it's really about capturing the the city at this particular time and then the city itself and all of its character and and so it it it, from a photographical point of view it's just like for me just so beautiful and captures the beauty of the city i think my favorite shot in all of cinema is one of the early scenes where they're they're coming uh, Papa Doyle and, and Roy Scheider's character are coming, they're going into that seedy bar where these guys are kind of boozing up around, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, which is yeah. also great. And if the bar is great and it looks like, man, that's the kind of bar that I would want to hang out at <laughs> and everyone's dressed great and everything, but they're walking, the sun is behind them. And there, there, there's a minute where the, the sun kind of, um, there's a sunspot on the camera. And it, to me, it's just such a beautiful image. And so iconic and, and the way that, you know, the sun plays off of the buildings and this particular kind of um, uh, color, the color spectrum of New York is very unique with all of the kind of earth tones and um, the way that the film is, you know, the way that the film is, is colored, is, is captures yeah. all that stuff so beautifully. I mean, I and can, then, you is know. That the, is that the scene, that, that's the bar scene you're talking about where they go into and there's like the music playing about uh, going to the moon and everything, is that? No, that's the no, copa scene. So that, yeah. yeah, that happens. That's a, a 
a little bit later. That's where they yeah. first stake out the guy and um, and the and the girlfriend and right, then, right. But, and but, then but, the, the but, mobsters. Yeah, the, yeah, plot stuff. But like, um, more like I was gonna say, like that was that was the thing that really got me watching. It's like, oh, this is just like you could go like at that time you could go into a place and there'd just be like a lovely show like this, a lively show. You know? Oh, I mean, I love that. I love that scene. Such a great song they yeah. sing. And I actually, I, I, uh, I referenced that. Um, I referenced that scene for one of my albums, the, the oh, last really? of the big time spenders. Yeah. The last of the big time spenders. They, they, it's when they're, they're sitting at the bar and they're having the drink and, mm-hmm. Uh, they're looking, they're casing out that table with all of the, when he's like, that table is definitely wrong. And, I, and, and they're looking at, I think they're looking at the, the, the Ridgewood character, which is the guy. And he says, and he's, I, I think Roy Shire says, who's the last of the big time spenders. So I, I, I took that from the title of my record, but uh, I love that. I love that scene. We only briefly talked about the car chase because we segued yeah. into <laughs> just driving in New York. And I, I would say that, I mean, I know that Friedkin tried to, he, it was his goal to make the best car chase scene ever. But I, I, I don't, in my mind, it, it's not as good as Bullet. Oh, okay. And, you know, Bullet's still the best. And uh, there's also a movie called The Seven Ups, which is, a, some, which is a, something of a sequel to The French Connection. Because Roy Scheider's in it, I believe, from uh, Hackman's not in it. But The Seven Ups has a great car chase. And I would actually say that Bullet is number one, Seven Ups is two, and that um, and that uh, French Connection is three. That that's a for all you know for any like seventies film buff car chase guys. Yeah, let's let's jump into Summer of Sam. Sweet, yeah. Yeah, I just want okay, just, yeah, just yeah. to really quickly say, you know, it's the nineteen ninety nine uh, Spike Lee film um, takes takes place in the summer of nineteen seventy seven. Well, the son of Sam Killer uh, is on the loose, and it's um, a bunch of uh, outer borough guys who are getting worked up uh, about um, you know this ambiguity of this killer in this ambiguous time as the city is going through all these changes. Sorry, you were going to say. Well, one of the notes that I had is kind of touches on something we we were just talking about the the kind of the the outer borough's experience of, of living in New York, and it's something that you get. You know, probably it's not the reason that anyone moves there initially, but after you've lived in the city for for a period of time, you realize that that the Manhattan is only obviously only, you know, the tip of the iceberg. And there's a certain kind of there's a certain kind of New York that exists in the outer boroughs, particularly in my mind, Queens, as you get closer to Long Island. And and I guess in in this movie, we're talking about a, a part of the Bronx. But but it's a really in the way it's depicted in in Summer of Sam. To me, I associate with that neighborhood as as being what I think of as a kind of like a Queens slash Long Island type of guy or neighborhood. Yeah. And it's a it's it's a unique part of the city which I think of as like the New York post New York. You know the the slightly <laughs> that, more the, conservative the, the New York Post, right? You're right, right. You know the. It, it, you know, it's the other side of the city that that doesn't maybe, you know, there's doesn't have a whole lot of romance to it. But but when you get into that milieu, it has as much charm as as any of the New York and living in Queens. You know, I lived in Ridgewood, but but, you know, and Ridgewood is basically at this point Bushwick. But you're only 10 minute drive from real Queens. 
And and when you know, you can get very quickly into a part of Queens which is uh, you know, which is a world away from, you know, hipster or Bushwick or Williamsburg, whatever. And 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 the more I lived in, you know, the more I lived in Queens, the more I was just I, I would say to myself, like if I if I ever you know, live in the city for the rest of my life. Like this is where I want to live. Yeah, I mean, this is, these are the people who have, yeah. I mean, they have it figured out. I mean, they're the ones who are li- really living in, in New York. It's like, you know, if you have a driveway and you can have a, you know, cookout and wash yeah. a car and listen to a Yankees game. Yeah. Uh, you've like made 15 it. square foot backyard, you know? Yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. You yeah, know yeah. that, but that is, that's it. That, that is, that's the tip of the, that's Mount Everest of New York city living, yeah, you know, yeah. to have a little place, a driveway, listen to a ball game and that's it. And, and, and I think that the, there's a whole, you know, a whole subculture, a whole population of New Yorkers who live that life, who they, they don't want anyone else to know how, they're glad that that you know that theirs is not the um, you know they, I think that they're happy you know they're happy to 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 uh, be under the radar as it were you know what I mean that they they they're glad they don't live in the, the East Village and and that's you know the, in Summer of Sam it captures that so well that kind of outer borough mentality um, you know around these guys that are living in this very specific part of the Bronx, which is right on the water during that time of Summer of Sam. <clears throat> and that kind of dichotomy between the Manhattan, New York, and the outer boroughs, New York. Another thing that anyone who's lived in the city for a long time realizes is that the, the, the New York City of the, the, the same block essentially is replicated ad infinitum as you go out or farther and farther out into the boroughs. And so that, you know, you can go to a bodega or get a slice of pizza or find a diner as far as the city, it almost seems almost infinite. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, yeah, and, and you can get and, really deep into it if you take the wrong turn at Albuquerque or whatever. And like, next thing you know, you, yeah, like it, it's actually fun in those early years to like just walk around, and get lost in this stuff for a little while. Right. And you realize that it's something that's so unique to the city that almost is not true anywhere else is that. That, that sense of density and urbanness exists. It, it continues to replicate itself as you go out farther. There is, so there isn't like a nucleus of the city and then you travel to a place where there's no stores like in most places. Yeah. Th- that you can always get a slice of pizza. You can always find a diner. You can always find a bodega. And so that these guys who live in this, in the movie, that, you know, they spend their time at the pizza parlor and that there's the Italian restaurant that Mira Servino's dad is, is the owner of, and you know that it's a great restaurant. And, and so that it really captures that, that part of New York, which is not the typical, you know, what you associate with, with the, you know, New York city, that you have to really be a long time New Yorker or a lover of, of the city to know, uh, to know about her. And again, this is another movie where there's just like great, like music and dance it's a it's a city where like you can go into a, you can go into a place and there's people singing and dancing and having a good time until you know right. the, the middle of the film but let me ask so here here's this was another one uh where again i i had seen it uh, i hadn't seen i saw the film uh i saw the film when it came out i hadn't seen it since um watching it this time i was wondering do you think spike lee's making a farce uh hmm is that how like, in what way? 
like so so he's making so he has these characters and they're very broadly drawn um and and you can tell that there's like he's he you know it's spike lee in 1999 uh you know we know what a spike lee this movie when it came out i remember it was kind of like a big deal because this is a movie where he's not making something about um black new york uh and right, he's, right. he's kind of going out of his you know out of his comfort zone air quotes on that um okay and um well let me back up a second are you do you do you, have you seen a lot of other Spike Lee films? Are you familiar with that? You know, I'm not, I, I haven't seen them all. I, I haven't yeah. seen the ones I probably should have seen. I haven't seen Do the Right Thing, which, you know, it basically makes me not someone who can speak <laughs> to Spike Lee in any kind of yeah, intelligent no, no, no. way. Yeah, yeah. But I love, I, but I love this movie. And I, I thought Malcolm X is great. I thought Bamboozled is great. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't loved, I haven't loved all the films of his I've seen. Sure. Um, but I, but I do think when I when I like them, I love them. Yeah, yeah. and and okay. there's something about the what. Yep. Oh, so 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 let's say, so the artist is dead, right? So let's just say like, so was this a film that you think you know um, they were trying to? It's so funny because it like starts out as something where you think like they're, it, it's an outside it's an outsider looking in. I think Spike Lee, whoever was making this film, if anyone was making this film, you would maybe get that feeling. Huh. Yeah. Well, now that one I'm thing loud, you I'm said about, with myself. Sorry. Go ahead. Right. Well, the thing you said about the way the characters are drawn yeah. <clears throat> widely, there's something unique about this movie, or maybe it's a Spike Lee thing. But I actually wrote it down. I know it's that hmm. there, there's a kind of like animated quality to the way his characters are drawn. Um, I, I feel like there's I don't want to say comic book, but there's a kind of um, there's a <sighs> There's a certain kind of um, big, bombastic nature to the way the characters are drawn in in this kind of, like animated is the word that comes to mind. Mm. Like just the way the John Leguizamo character or his 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 Italian buddies are these um, archetypes, and you know the way the mobsters are the archetypes the character that spike lee himself plays in the movie one of the great scenes that i i that i remember is when you know he plays a newscaster and there's a scene when you know he's he's doing a a broadcast from the from the from brooklyn during the blackout of 77 and and that's a great scene the way that the way that it's framed like uh you know, he's talking to the camera as if he's a newscaster. And, and so there's a, there's a kind of circus quality to the movie that, mm. that I, I mean, whether, I don't know, if, I don't know, I don't have in my head like a definition of farce necessarily, but I think of it, I think of the movie as an homage to, to New York and specifically to the 70s, you know, maybe to, you know, wink to, to 70s cinema or to just this darker time in New York, this, this sense of nostalgia that, that seems to be, you know, this ironic nostalgia that, that New Yorkers have for a time when the city was technically worse, you know, which, yeah. which is ironic because every, but everyone still has it at the same time. Like <laughs> we, we somehow want the city to be more dirty and more violent for some reason, because maybe, I don't know, there's always a thing <clears throat> that, you know, everyone wants to say that they remember the time before now, when, when, because it shows that they've been there long enough. And so there's yeah. always this kind of nostalgia in New York City. 
you have a you have a song called "What Good Would It Do," and you have you have a line that that struck me but as very like of New York with um. Oh God! Now I'm talking to you, and it's it's escaping me. But it's um, was like uh, Bay, Bayside Avenue. No, no, we we used to uh, you used to have to watch yourself when walking. Oh right, 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 right. I'm right, very right. embarrassed right now. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, no. Yeah, I, I I used to need to keep my wits about me on the street. Now every time I come here, there's another place. To be. Right. Yeah. yeah. That that kind of thing. You know. Yeah. That nostalgia for the that nostalgia for for the looking over your shoulder times and mm-hmm. I mean Spike Lee grew up in in um, in Brooklyn um, and I'm sure that you know he has complicated feelings about the way that New York's changed. But in fact, I know he does. And and so I mean I I see the movie as uh, yeah I mean Jimmy the way that Jimmy it's framed with these Jimmy Breslin monologues. So it's, it's there just in that it's a, you know, it's a classic um, evocation of this New York character saying, you know, you know, crime, crime is down, down, down. But this is a story about a different New York in the hump, the hot summer of 1977. And so it's, uh, you know, to me, it's a love letter to, to the city and, and one that, you know, you've really got to be someone who loves to the city to, to see, I mean, you know, it's a great movie, but, but mm-hmm. if you, if you, someone who loves the city, this movie really speaks to you. W- one of the things that, that really affects me about this movie is, is the, the nature of like being in New York in the summertime. Yeah. Because, you know, it's cause it's, Oh, you know, there's always inevitably going to be like a few weeks or days, which are just like crazy hot. Yeah. And there's something specific about New York in summer because there's this feeling that like the rich people aren't there. And and so it's it's really kind of like the, you know, the people like me, you know, I was pizza delivery guy or, you know, the cab drivers or, you know, the New Yorkers who are kind of like toughing it out are there like, sweating it out through these, these hot, long days. Yeah. And there's a kind of collective sense that you're all in it together in, in the summertime, you know, or this kind of like also this sense because it gets so hot that there's never really, it's really the city that never sleeps at that point. You know, like I in Ridgewood, I lived in a Egyptian neighborhood, and I remember coming back from work at like midnight, and it would be like eighty, ninety degrees, and the, the kids would still be out playing soccer on the sidewalk, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, so yeah, this, yeah. This real kind of, and 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 that and Summer of Sam really captures that, like, and and and, and if you add on top of that, the, the idea that there's a serial killer on the loose, <laughs> so that there's really this like insular sense of like we're all live, we're all kind of living in the same melodrama you know everyone's reading the, the daily news of the post every day and there's this kind of like you know and and there's there's something about the city in the summertime that you always feel like you're part of some kind of collective drama and the yankees are always kind of like in the backdrop somewhere um, yeah like and it's in, it's in the nature of new yorkers to see the world through the their the the drama of what it's like living in the city so when there's an added drama on top of it, you know, if it's COVID or whatever, mm. it, 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 um, it elevates that sense of like, we are living a separate drama than the rest of humanity, you know, like, or at least the rest of America, that, that this New York experience is unique to the whole world that like we could, the whole world could not even exist and wouldn't change a thing. You know what I mean? Like 
the Yankees would still be the Yankees and, you know, it would still be super hot. You'd still, all these things would still kind of somehow play, continue to play themselves out. I was, it was so nice to see, uh, I hadn't seen Mira Sorvino in anything in a long time. And it was so nice to like, get to like spend time with her again, because she really was a great screen presence. And, and it was just like, uh, and, and like Wazamo, of course he, uh, you know, it was, it was so funny in that period. He he was taking on so many interesting roles and, and, um, uh, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like I don't get to see him as much as uh, I used to. Um, yeah, I totally, I totally agree. He's so great. He's so great in that movie and she is as well. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, to me, he's, he's, the two of them are really like, they steal the show. I mean, that it, it's worth watching just for the, for the acting that they do. And, and he's fantastic. And, you know, and then there's the backdrop of 70, the, the East of the CBGBs and, you know, punk music. And um, I guess this was one of uh, Adrian Brody's early roles. And yeah. he's, he's great as well. And um, Did you go you to know. CBGBs? Did you have any sort of relationship to CBGBs? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I mean, it was still there when I, when I had moved there. Um, I don't know. I would see shows there and stuff. But at yeah. that point, it was, a, you know, it was a novelty. Yeah. I mean, it was like the kind of thing anyone could get a show at CBGBs in, you know, in a weird way, you know, but I remember hanging out there like a bunch of times and I think like got drunk in the back was like breaking bottles that had like a punk rock moment in the back of CBGBs. And, and it's one of those things that like now, you know, I wish I had taken a moment to, you know, realize that I was in this, this, you know historic place but at the time it was just one of those places that was there but it was yeah. you know it was kind of like well it, it always was there. like it always you have to assume it would always be there because it's you know <laughs> right yeah yeah no it, you much. you didn't it's it's impermanent it's so impermanent all of those things but at the time it was like you know pop punk bands from new jersey that played there <laughs> you know what i mean so it, it, it didn't it did and that's another weird thing that a place that had like that was you know, it was, edge. You know, it was icon. Yeah, an iconic in in so many ways that it, it stood for it stood for the beginning of this movement, which became one of the most important art movements of the late twentieth century. And so it stood for you know it not only had historic importance, but it also stood for a certain kind of like aesthetic quality mm-hmm. that even a place like that could could fall from grace. And you know anyone can get a show there 30 years later. It's just, it's just no crushing. different than any other yeah. event. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I mean, it's real it's, estate it's, just like came in. Yeah. Sorry. I'm speculating. Yeah, now, yeah. I didn't look into the history too, too deeply, but. But that, you know, but the, even the, even the, and, but that's true about lots of places in the city. I mean, like, cause there were still, um, you know, places that had been big in the sixties that the Dylan had played at by mm-hmm. the time I got to New York, you know, were, was a joke, like Kenny's Castaway. I'm not sure Kenny's Castaway was, was a place that Dylan played. But I think, like, the bottom line was there, or um, there was another place. But by, by the time that I had gotten there, they were they were tourist joints, you know. So they're even for places which should have this, like, landmark status that, you know, they, 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 they can't escape the kind of commerce of the city, you know, this, this city should have created, made CBGB's a landmark. You yeah. know what I mean? It, it, it should have been, you know, people like Patty Smith should still be playing there. But it just, it, you can't escape the, you know, the, the economics of, of New York. You know, there's no such thing as landmark status. 
So yeah, my my uh, my big my big heartbreak was uh, Mars Bar, um, and and the thing that yeah, I always yeah. felt like with Mars Bar was that it was um, it had such a small footprint. Like, why would you pick on this? Thing? Oh yeah, you know, and it was just, right. No, it was, it was tiny. <laughs> it it felt like it was totally. like they 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 had to destroy that one because they could. You know, like right. It was just ridiculously small. Right. Yeah. Right. Great bathroom. No, I know. Never forget it, that bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> no and it's crazy there's so many you can once you start going down memory lane and it's funny because you bring up mars bar because mars bar is one of those places that i wasn't it, it somehow wasn't in my uh you you kind of like develop your own just like yeah. pattern of places you go kind of arbitrarily and for whatever reason mars bar wasn't one of them for me like it was <laughs> just I'd always heard about it. And of course I'd been there, but it wasn't one of the, it's like in every neighborhood you're in, there's certain pizza places you go to for, for some reason and others you just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> for whatever reason, Mars bar was, and then, and then at some point I was, I found myself there and I was like, Oh, so now I'm, I'm in Mars bar, you know, <laughs> now, now I'm actually in this place that, that has been mythic, you know, but a place like for me that I, I spent lots of time at was, I guess maybe still there was, uh, 2A on the corner of 2nd and, and Avenue A. It's like, and, and right. not, you know, n- not an iconic place uh, visually, but for whatever reason, we'd always end up there. Or uh, or 7B on the corner of B and 7th was another one that, you know, and, and once you start, but once you start going down that path, you just, just like you keep going. Right and going. Yeah. Um, hey, do you want to, you know, do, do you want to go from um, uh, CBGBs to the gaslight? Oh, yeah, you mean start talking about Loon Days? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think, I think the, the Summer of Sam, uh, just to reiterate, the, the, it's, it's really about the city in the summertime. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, that, that's evocative to, to me. But, but yeah, Loon Davis is, I think, maybe the most personal New York movie for me. Um, and again, you know, I, I don't, I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would necessarily say the loon davis is a new york movie per se um oh. as much as just a, a coen brothers i mean it is it is yeah. it is clearly but it's it's as much a coen brothers movie as it is a new york movie and their their films are so idiosyncratic that um you know it's almost the you know kind of the inverse of of uh of a french connection which is really about the city the character of the city as plays the leading role in the film where in Lewin Davis, it's, it's a little bit more in the background, partially, I think, because it's not necessarily an iconic period of New York. When we think of like the classic 70s visuals of, of New York, we think of French Connection. Yeah. Um, but, but this movie takes place in the early 60s, and so we don't necessarily have a, a fixed mental picture of what New York looks like in the early 60s, maybe from certain Hitchcock movies or something. Yeah. Um, and so it, so it's a period film, which makes it, makes it, you know, maybe a little bit more difficult for the city to, to have a character, um, in the way that it does in, in the other ones we talked about, but, yeah, but the, the cones are also about like, like there's, they're good with alienation. And I think it, it, this is definitely a film that is, that is specifically about alienation. So it's sort of mm-hmm. that going from Summer of Sam, which is about like community and like knowing the people mm-hmm. around you and not that, you know, not that there isn't some of that in this movie, but it's also about like, just, you know, um, totally. Yeah. 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 No, that's a good point. That's a good point. I think that Moon Davis is maybe the most personal 
<clears throat> movie for me of you know maybe any film um and so it, it it you know it's hard for me to watch it without you know it, it it's so evocative of things that i went through as a as a young person in the city and also just in, you know it depicts this you know uh specific time in the folk movement and i kind of had my own version of that playing at the sidewalk which is basically like a folk scene and it, you know the first scene fancy folk right yeah which is which is just which is just a branding yeah if, if you know you know re- if you don't you don't <laughs> it, it's an attempt to rebrand a guy with a guitar yeah. <laughs> no but there was there were like yeah i mean qualities what, to that to that era to 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 your era to, um to the anti-folk scene i don't know it's a, maybe it's just like that was when i was when i was in my 20s and that's when i discovered the music that really spoke to me that wasn't like like sort of like I found organically and it, there wasn't like some big corporation that was like telling me that this was like the music for my generation. Totally. No, in retrospect, I mean, I, I think maybe one of the few lucky, one of the most luckiest uh, things in my life is that I, I somehow wound up at, at the sidewalk because it was really a unique thing in, in a period of time that was outside of any kind of mainstream. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the, you know, the friendships and the kind of artistic connections that I made there will, you know, last probably my whole life. And it was really a kind of magical thing that drew a lot of my contemporaries and me to this place. And um, no, it, you know, and, and very much like the world that is depicted in Lewin Davis. And mm-hmm. it's eerie, it's almost eerie, the similarities between my life, the experiences that I had and, and what he goes through in this movie. It's almost every, every scenario is something that I can remember. It's like, as I said, I was, you know, I also was like a guy, kind of a couch surfer. Yeah. And in the, in the winter time. Yeah. And, you know, didn't have, uh, didn't have proper, you know, clothing for the cold winters and the kind of the process of like trying to figure out where I was going to sleep that night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, staying up, I used to stay up all night at this diner on Avenue way, um, Odessa. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd stay up and drink coffee all night. And, you know, at six in the morning, I would like kind of when the sun rose, I would kind of walk out onto the street kind of thing. And like there's a scene when he's in Chicago, when he's at the bar, at the um, at the diner and he, he's basically falling asleep and his socks are all wet. He's he's just drinking coffee because he can't afford anything else. And I mean, that scene, it's like I, I'd been in that exact scenario so many times. And it was almost like they were, it was almost like a, just a replaying of situations that I'd been in as, yeah. and as a young person trying to be a musician. Um, you know, the, when he, when he kind of schleps to his managers in that scene, when he goes to his manager, trying to, uh, his manager, uh, uh, Mel, mm-hmm. to see if he has any money for him. I mean, I, I, that used to happen to me. Like um, the guy that I worked with had an office in Dumbo and I would have the one thing that I would have to do all day would be to kind of like get myself to Dumbo to see if the guy that I worked with had any, had any dough for me or kind of thing. You can do a phone call or uh, I'm, I'm curious. You know, but it's, it's more, it may, it's, it, you know, maybe I didn't have a cell phone at the time yeah, or, yeah. you know, I probably did, but it was, it was kind of like, like Lou and Davis, I was a guy kind of without that much to do. 
But if, so, go, but if you go there in person, then they then they have to like it, then they have to actually look you in the eye and say no. So like, yeah, actually. yeah, and it makes it seem like you you have a real career when you don't. If you actually have a a, a trek to make, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like it makes it more real as opposed to just calling him up for to him for him to tell you that he doesn't have any money for you. At least, yeah, yeah you have to, you know. So, you know, and and also the way that they depict the the circle around the the the, the folk scene the open mic is so reminiscent of stuff that I remember from the sidewalk, for instance, like the Gorefines, that the family that he stays with on the Upper East Side, yep. there's always, there's every, every kind of like open mic folk crowd has their version of the Gorefines yeah. who, who are kind of like the, the, the academics who kind of slum it at the open mic to like, you know, hang out with the young hip crowd. And, and, you know, the, and you can always stay at their place, you know crash on their couch if, if if you need to and you know there's that line about how he he stays with them only when he circles through his village friends <laughs> yeah. that that couple is so accurate and as to what it's like in these kind of you know off the radar you know folk music circles and i don't it, it's almost the way that the coens can write characters like that which are both uh you know so funny and Meek, but also so true to um, so true to life is, um, and also the doctor, the abortion doctor. He's another classic. There's always there's that line when he's like, "Where have you been? I don't see you at the hoot anymore." <laughs> like there, there would always be that kind of version of a guy at the sidewalk is kind of like a he's a professional. He's maybe a lawyer, but he's you know he he wants to like get out his you know folk music fantasies. And so all that stuff is so. Uh, rings so true, and yeah. so many, so many things about that movie. I just um, and then somebody so with like a podcast taps you on the shoulder, like you know, even after you get out. Right. Um, was there anything about um, uh, Isaac as a performer that um, stood out to you, or anything there that you wanted to like comment on? Yeah. Well, I think that, that I think that right. I mean, to talk about more about about the film, it. You know, one of the things that impressed me when I first saw it was that the way that, because I'd read about it before I saw it, and the way that they had spun the the story was that he was kind of like an amateur, kind of mediocre. And and I was impressed by right. how good he was in the movie. Okay, and, well, and I Oscar think Isaac what, or 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 um, like the Lewin Davis Van Ronk. Well, uh, well, both. I mean, I mean, I guess Oscar Isaac was did it did it. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of him. I think he did a very good job doing what he needed to do, but really that Lewin was, and I think that's an interesting kind of needle that they thread is that he's, and, and really, cause it's kind of based on Dave Van Ronk. And, and so it's this sense that he's, he's very good, but he's not Dylan. And so the difference in art between being, being very good and being immortal can, can be, can be a hard one. You know, it, yeah. we, we know it when we see it, but it's different than saying he's a, he's a hack. And yeah. and so his and that, so his kind of dilemma in the film is this interesting one where he he knows that he has something he knows shit when he sees it like when he watches that guy and he's like does he have a higher function and yeah. and and everyone else is eating up this guy's performance but 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 Lou and Davis knows the guy stinks yeah you know he can just tell right off the bat but but so he's he's in this dilemma he's like well I know this guy stinks I know I'm better than him but yet I'm freezing my ass off and wandering from place to place like. Where do the, when do the when do the gods of folk music start to uh, work for me? Yeah, and and that's another thing about the film which is very personal to me because you know 
being a, a member of like an open mic, you're going to, you're going to engage with a bunch of people who are maybe not as good as you. And, and it, it can be easy to say that because I'm not the worst, I'm the best. And, and as something as a professional, you realize that it, it's not enough to be better than the worst guy up at the open mic. That doesn't make you a, a rock star. You know what I mean? That just, that means that you got a little bit of something that you need to develop. And that's kind of the weird tragedy of the film is that, I don't know if it's tragedy, but it's just that he, he's searching, he, he knows that he has something, but he, he, it gets the better of him in the end. And he ends up attacking this woman who's just a, an amateur person from out of town, way beneath oh, him. Yeah, but actually. he kind of debases Yeah, he debases himself and tries to make himself into a big, big man, um, you know, by, by pushing this little person down. And it's because he, you know, because, you know, he's, he's bitter and he knows that he has something. And but then the final irony is that when, when, you know, at the very last scene, when, when Dylan appears, he, he realizes, and you can see the moment where he's realizing that there's yeah, someone hey, who's here. This who, guy? Yeah. Right. And, and then he gets, he gets his ass kicked. And I have a theory about the ass kissing scene, kick, okay. kicking scene and all that stuff. Um, well, but go. again, it's like, well, I'll, I'll get, I'll get there. But yeah, no, I mean, in a way, well, we should all be thankful. Those of us who, you know, there's a certain kind of tragedy of the, of the folk singers at that time that they, you know, that they were in many ways very gifted and had an artistic vision, but they, they just had the bad fortune of being confronted by, a, you know, not only a generational artist, but perhaps a, 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 one of the greatest artists of the century, one of the just one of cosmic forces of art. And you can only imagine what it must have felt like to have been put in your place by not just, uh, you know, for me, you know, Jeff Lewis or Adam Green, but, you know, Bob Dylan shows up to, to kind of ruin your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So in a, in a way, I mean, I know the Collins are fans of Dylan and they grew up in the same, you know, city that Dylan grew up. And there's a kind of a th Bob Dylan through line to a lot of their movies. In a way, it's, I always thought of it as a movie about Bob Dylan and about the... Um, the kind of the, the six, whatever, the, the, the few weeks before the, uh, the bomb drops, so to speak, before like the, you know, this, this incredible force emerged out of, out of nowhere. Yeah. Which um, permeates like the entire scene. Right. Right. And, and which, 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 yeah, which is this, it's like almost like an atomic bomb of talent where everyone is automatically revealed for to themselves for what they are. And Van Rock even says so much in Scorsese's um, documentary about Dylan. It was this almost traumatic experience for a lot of those guys. I know that, you know, for a guy like Phil Oaks or it was almost traumatic to, to, to have to be confronted with, um, you know, because it was like the, one of the things about art scenes is that there's a kind of collective dream or a collective vision. And to find out that, that someone else has is able to manifest your vision better than you is 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 it's hard for an artist you know it and especially you got to imagine people who had to be you know peripherally around bob at the time it must have just been soul you know not soul crushing but certainly ego crushing i imagine that you needed to go through some serious self-examination you know those people did and so i think that I think Lou and Davis, it, it touches on, it, it, it's about 
the artistic process and the nature of being an artist, the nature of excellence and um, identity. You know, um, I love the whole scenario where they go to Chicago with those beatniks and, mm-hmm. and Goodman plays the junkie. And, and that's another thing which, which happened to me, you know, similar experiences where he sees himself as kind of like the, the, bad, the bad guy on the scene, you know, like the guy who impregnates guys, girlfriends type. He's kind of like the, you're not sure if he's a good guy or not. You yeah. know, he has this identity himself, but then he's confronted with some real low lives <laughs> and he realizes yeah. that he's actually not, he's actually not such a bad dude. He's actually kind of just a nice <laughs> little kid, you know yeah. what I mean? Compared to these cats. It's a, um, it's, and that's it's an really interesting, happened to me. It's a really interesting way the story develops because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't show, uh, it doesn't show like the, the like salad days and then, you know, like, uh, um, kind of contrast that with this grim stretch. It, the whole thing is in the grim stretch, and it just kind of like sideways. Oh yeah, things used to be okay, or things used to be better, and, and that's totally I, I, yeah. I, I haven't had uh, a winter go by since I've seen this film that I that I don't watch it because it really is like um, you know the problem with winter and films is that Christmas is such a looming thing. But like this movie is February. This movie is like every month of February, where it's just like. How right. long is this going to go on? Grim. How long is this? Yeah, like, and I don't even remember when it was nice out, and you know, yeah, it, and totally. It's, it's, I, it's I, very comforting to see that in a film, right? And and again, and and yeah, that 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 scene where he's waking up at uh, Gene and Jim's apartment, and it's cold out, and he's got the window open, and it's, yeah. and he's smoking a cigarette. Yeah. It's like I've been I've been in all of those apartments. I've been in that exact place in the middle of like a dark February when, you know, the interiors of that movie are, are great. Just to off, you know, slightly off topic, but just no, uh, no, no. Yeah, the, the way texture, they shoot yeah. those interior apartments. Yeah, mm-hmm. when he goes in and there's the landlord, Nunzio, and he's, you know, Nunzio, I need you to let me into their place. And, you know, and then, you know, Al Cody's apartment and, it's all of those, all of those moments between those characters are just like, you know, things that happen to me over and over again. Yeah. But it's funny, you know, Lewin Davis is not universally uh, loved film. I know a lot of my yeah. friends don't like it. Um, they don't like the music. They, you oh. know, they, they don't, they, they're not crazy about the, um, the um, what's his name? The, the, the British guy. Uh, yeah. Um, what's his name? I can't remember it right off, off the top of my head. Um, uh, I'll think of it. But yeah, they, I guess they, they think the music's too commercial sounding or that, mm-hmm. you know, the movie is not really, you know, it's too, I'm mean, one of my friends said it doesn't really feel like a very lived in kind of um, period film. Like everything's kind of too clean looking and, mm, yeah, you know, I, I think like a warm comes, blanket at times. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think to me, like those are all bullshit criticisms and i think that generally with the cohen's they they tend to divide people um you know i'm i'm a you know total lover of of almost all their movies so and this one is probably the most but um but it's interesting that to some and it's also you know the kind of tangential narrative it's not entirely clear what the movie's about um it's about folk singer and a cat but Right, that you know, and and uh, you know, Dave Van Ronk is the there's he had a he had a record cover with him and, and a cat, right? Yeah, yeah, just yeah. like it's the and, same um, cover, but but minus the cat, yeah. Right, 
And, you know, they say, there's that line, Lewin is the cat, like Lewin this weird kind of yeah. Coen Brothers giveaway. And, um, I read the thing where they said at one point, like, yeah, we put the cat in because there really wasn't a plot. So it kind of like gave things a little bit more form and that. Right. But they was, they're always kind of like leading you down dead alleys and in interviews. Yeah. I don't know. I got into a thing a few months ago where I was just like watching Coen Brothers interviews and, um, they're really like kind of like 90 smart asses. I mean, yeah, they're yeah, really yeah. like, it's a shame that David Foster <laughs> Wallace and the Coen brothers never got together on Charlie Rose or whatever. You know yeah. what I mean? Like just to see who could out smart ass out deadpan. Yeah. <laughs> they really are. I actually, I actually met, I didn't meet him, but uh, I was working in uh, a sandwich store in the West village once. And, um, and uh, Joel Cohen came in with uh, Francis McDormand. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I, you know, I was like really starstruck. It was a sh- tiny little store I worked at and she was kind of like going around buying like, you know, whatever fancy mayonnaise is. And, and, mm-hmm. and he gave me this dead pan, just as a classic, like dead eyed Joel Cohen look. And I don't know <laughs> if it was to say that, like, I know, you know who I am or yeah. I, I hate this store or <laughs> don't even try to, <laughs> don't even try to talk to me. I know that you want to talk to me. Don't <laughs> Well, is this thing where, like, what would you even say to Joel Cohen? Like, uh, hey, what was Barton uh, think about? Like, 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 was he right. tell you? You know, like, no, they're, they're and, very interesting and, artists in that way. No, and they and they and they've mastered the deadpan, like, and it's almost like, but in a way, like the more I, in a way, watching these interviews with them, they they come down to earth a little bit because. They, for me, like they have this mythic status, but then you can kind of see that they're just like some slackers who are playing the nineties. I'm smarter than you game, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of the, like the Bob Dylan, like I'm going to mess with you kind of thing. Yeah. They, you know, they throw stuff out there just to say, you know, just to fuck with people. And, you know, they're, you know, there's, there's a couple smart asses, but you know, God bless them. Well, people from um, Minnesota are aggressive and warlike and uh, you know, we just got to call them out for what they are, you know? <laughs> right that's that, that's a good, another i mean i love uh love a serious man too that's yeah, another yeah, great yeah. one of them. That, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a miller's you know, guy but yeah yeah that, that's another one i love <laughs> you know but that has that line they they you know to, to the back to the lewin is yeah. the cat thing there's a line in that where he says it's not it's not about the story the math is what matters when he's trying to explain the the paradox of the the cat Mm-hmm. And then he says, it's not, it's not the story. It's not the cat. It's, it's the mass that makes the whole thing work. <clears throat> and I think as a kind of like, to me, as the, you know, it's a, to me, that is a similar line where in that line is the kind of the, the real subtext of the whole movie in the way that it deals with, you know, like religion and, and, um, you know, Torah or whatever. There's this kind of like, it, no, you're, if you're looking at the story, you're missing, you're missing the, the, the meaning beyond it but that's my own interpretation of that but you know these movies are they have a kind of somatic yeah. thing or you can kind of just but the but getting back to the, the thing about the the uh the moon getting his ass kicked so i think that i when i first saw it i had this feeling that that guy was <clears throat> the kind of archetypal devil from the, the crossroads right okay yeah Be- because the devil's always depicted as a tall, thin white man in like a three piece suit. And the, the, the reason Lewin gets his ass kicked by the devil is he's basically saying like, 
you're not, you don't have what it takes to, to sell your soul essentially. Like, I'm just going to kick your ass. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you the, you know, the keys to the castle of art because you forfeited your badassness by, you know, by what you did to this poor lady. Yeah. So that was kind of, that's my like, whatever, like reading too deep into the, that scene theory. No, no, I like that. Yeah. I, I definitely, I, I had a, I had a morning a few months ago where I, I think I just like woke up hungover and I was just like, I just had that line. What'd you do? What'd you do? Stuck in my head. And I, and it actually took me a couple of days before I could even remember what, what it was from, but it was uh, right, because it's very haunting do. and it like exists almost. Yeah. He's this figure that's so menacing. It's almost, beyond or outside of this film and and it, yeah they 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 know what they're doing right. putting like the gas on something like that so so is there like a segue oh well, i was right well i was just talking about how yeah. you know during covid i've gone back and forth with a buddy from england he's in the band called the wave pictures and talking about movies and stuff and so that i'm, I'm primed to uh opine on, on stuff mm-hmm. like cinema because i've been practicing for a while and when I told him I was doing this, he had he had an opinion. He was like, Terminator 2 is better than Lewin Davis and Summer of Sam, oh. without a doubt. <laughs> and, and, I, and, he, and he said, you Shots know, French Connection is, is... Right, well, he was just, no, he doesn't hold back his opinion. And so I went yeah. into this being like, all right, because, you know, Terminator's not, you know, I'm, you know, it's not in my wheelhouse necessarily. Yeah, and so you, I had you watched it of, for this show, yeah. Right. And I, I remembered I'd actually seen it as a kid mm-hmm. um, when I watched it again. But, you know, I, I guess I'm not when it when it comes to art or popular culture, like I, I tend to be like, not the guy who can see quality in something that's, you know, ostensibly for popular consumption. Mm-hmm. I, in other words, like, I, I don't know if it's like, little bit of a snob or something you know yeah. like classic I'm, I'm never hipster. Gonna like, yeah yeah yeah, yeah I'm, I'm like a hipster from the 90s i'm not like yeah. I, you're not going to convince me like madonna's cool or something mm-hmm. i come from like the kirk cobain like you know this kind of like snob era of of consumer of culture not like and it's not to say that the coen brothers are not meant for popular consumption but only that like you know i don't i don't you know, I don't have the, the ability to appreciate necessarily, or I don't, it's not part of my makeup to necessarily see greatness in something like the Terminator. So I needed to operate outside my comfort zone a little bit. But, so, you know. So how, was, so how how did it go for you watching it as, as an adult? Well, you know, I would say that if, if this movie were made today, it probably would be, you know, at least nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> you know, it, yeah, it, for sure. You know, it, it would, and not even as a kind of like a nod to, uh, you know, a nod to, to a, a, a blockbuster. It would, it, it would potentially qualify on its own for, for a best picture, and, and could even win. And people mm-hmm. wouldn't, you know, think it was a. You know, it's just funny to see how, how the think pieces about, uh, you know, all the like subplots and like issues of maternity and uh, like motherhood and, and everything, which is all right, humanity. humanity yeah. Right. No. And so, you know, the thing that impressed me was just, you know, knowing what little I do about the blockbuster genre in 2021 and just seeing 
this film that was made at the, you know, the very beginning of, of this, you know, way of approaching filmmaking and, and just how, uh, how, you know, how well done a movie like this could be and how, you know, how the action scenes were framed, you know, within the story. And there weren't, there were no holes in the story that I could see. Like there was nothing, you know, I mean, it's not a deep film necessarily. And, and it, it is a blockbuster. And so it's, you know, I, I want to get to the David Foster Wallace yeah. critique because I kind of was going into it. I was going to say, on this, is, reading, this, reading this is thing. what excited me when, when we were talking about, uh, over email was you, you had said that you had read um, this essay, like essay, it's like, right. like seven page piece um, uh, that uh, David Foster Wallace wrote about it. And, um, and, and I'd been wanting to talk about this on the show for a while. So I'm sorry. Right. So I read it before I watched it. And, and it's funny, it, it's kind of ironic because his, you know, he doesn't like the film because he's comparing it to the first one. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I guess, I guess I'm curious how, with, 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 with uh, to, my question for you would be why Terminator 2 and, and not Terminator, not the original? Is it, do you oh, find it to be better than the original? Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I, I do like the second one. I, I think the second one's more interesting. Um, uh, I I think that you know part of why I do the show is because um, I, I weirdly I tend to think that it's a film that like a lot of people have seen and so like it's something that they can just jump on and talk about and yet the last three I've had on this show have been like I had to watch it for the first time <laughs> and I'll say I'm glad that you enjoyed it because the last two guests I had were like uh, it's not my thing and I felt bad but. Um, there's a lot to unpack in the, there's a little bit more to unpack in the second one for me. Cause I think there's, there, there's different right. characters and they, they sort of upend um, like some of the action genre films, but also uh, honestly, it's just one of those things where like by this point, it's funny. Um, I, I keep, every time I go back to it, I feel differently about it. And I, I actually, okay. this Zelig thing now where, when people say they, they hate it and it sucks, I'm like, yeah, it does kind of suck, doesn't it? You know, but, and, and right, right. people are like, oh, it's like my favorite film ever. I'm like, it's really good. So, you know, I'm, it's just me being spiral, but it tends to- Yeah, no, I have, that, more out of people. I have that same thing with movies. If, if I'm talking to someone who doesn't like them, I, I, I kind of tend to see it from there. Um, I'm that, you know, I'm, I'm that way too. So, so but, you read this and, yeah. and, and the great David Foster Wallace had kind of infamously, I think that was the first time when I read it, that was the first time I read someone who said, yeah, it's not that good. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, and then you have right. well, another person saying, sorry. Well, the funny thing is that he comes at it from the first one is this seminal marriage of, of you know, real filmmaking with, um, you know, something made for mass consumption mm-hmm. and you know he's you know unlike you know unlike me i guess in that way you know he, he's all about you know he can see greatness in something that's made for the masses you know, themes running through his 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 work um and his you know his thesis is that which is a funny it's very funny his thesis is basically that the terminator 2 is a vehicle for arnold schwarzenegger to remake his career mm-hmm as a as not a bad guy and the reason that he's so basically he only agreed to do the film if he could go from being the bad guy to the good guy so the challenge for david for james cameron was how to thread that needle and make it believable as a story while also having the movie be this 
ostensible Huge. vehicle for uh, right but also this this kind of like vehicle for arnold to remake his public image so that he mm-hmm. could go on to be a bigger and bigger star so that he's got so on the one hand he's dealing with he's got because clearly that's a little bit out of left field plot twist mm-hmm. but they make it work and so he's dealing with how am i going to do that but then also the nature of just like making a huge blockbuster where the input from so many different, uh, you know, money people or studio people inherently makes the movie suffer artistically. And so Wallace has this kind of like whatever mathematical equation that the more, yeah. the, more, the move, more money cost quality law, I see too well. <laughs> right, I, have, right, I have it right in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, so, but you know, which is, you know, he was writing this in about the early nineties. And so we, we we're all now very acquainted with that concept. Yeah having seen what's happened in movies in yeah, whatever, I just 20 re- years. Re- rereading, the, rereading that piece this morning, I was thinking like, you know, like he, you would think that he's describing like an Avengers film, the way that they talk about like centering CGI. Totally. And it's really not. Totally. And, and it actually uses a lot of other effects very effectively in, in, in totally. my opinion. I, it, it's yeah. not one of his strongest... I, I like it because he kind of like is taking a jab at this movie that I think most people generally broadly like, but I think that the, like, I, and I don't think that he put like that much thought into this, but I, I you know, th- there was some, no, it, like, yeah. I'm not trying to be the nerd here, DFW, but like, no, right. No, that's kind of the irony because he's, he's, he's actually not right. As yeah, far as I felt watching the movie, it's like he's, like you said, he's like he, it's like he's describing a movie which hasn't come out yet, you know, that would end up, you know, coming out. And so that's kind of like the weird final twist because he's not wrong in the, the ratio of, of quality to, to yeah. budget. But, but it doesn't, but, you know, in retrospect, we've seen so many bad giant blockbusters that, you know, you know, it's, DFW kind of being um you know um you know Grumpy prophetic or, or in the way yeah. in, the, in the way Upset. that he is or something yeah. but i think that you know no and and because the cgi the special effects are great i yeah. mean it's so much better you know we actually watched star wars last night with my kid and uh you know that's the great example of special effects you know from 40 50 years ago yeah. looking yeah. um i know 40 um, looking, you know, so great as opposed to now. And, you know, it's a cliche to say that, but, but it's true with this one too. I mean, it, there's never that weird moment when you're watching where the, you get the, you can see the computer effects and it, it's seamless the way it works. I think I thought the final death scene was fantastic the way they did that. I love yeah. the, uh, you know, it, it's interesting that, you know, the idea of mortality of, of Im- the immortality of immortality that you have these machines, especially the, the, the evil Terminator who, who's essentially can't die, mm-hmm. but, but even things that can't die can die. Yeah. So there's, there's always a way to kill something which is seemingly unkillable. Like he, he can be frozen or that he can melt that, that, so that, you know, that's just kind of like, and the way that they, they had him die where it was almost like he was, crying out in pain or something but you know he can't feel pain but this kind of what it would be like if computers could feel pain what would it sound like talking about schwarzenegger when that jab when that thing gets jabbed into his back 
referring to? Or, or oh no, I'm sorry. No, I'm referring to the when the T one thousand gets yeah, thrown into the molten pit and it it has its like yeah like, right, and he's kind of like all of the different people that he's yeah, uh, yeah. manifested have, have kind of appear. Yeah, I thought that that was very effective, both uh, technically and kind of just conceptually. Yeah, yeah. The, the, what would it what would it what would it sound like if you could hear a computer being destroyed? What would what kind, yeah. what would the computer sound like? A computer, you know? Yeah. Right, and I, I mean, I have this thing where it's like, it's I have like some kind of like aversion to um, to um, artificial intelligence, like mm. I. When I see like a, some kind of robot that looks like a human, I, I, I feel like I want to hit it with a baseball bat or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. If I, I feel like if I were like in, you know, on a field trip on, in some lab where they like showed us a, a fake human, I would be, I would like, you <laughs> know, it. attack it or something like that. <laughs> you know I mean, um, again, like it, I, I'm not saying that it, it didn't make me cry or anything. And mm. I mean, I, again, it's, you know, it it wasn't. I, I was surprised by how much I liked the film, but I, I I'm not. I don't think I'm gonna become a d- devotee of it or anything. No, no. Um, no, no. And you know, short. I think DFW described Schwarzenegger that you know compared to him. Um, um, oh, someone was Olivia. Uh, Chuck Norris is Olivia. Yeah, Chuck Chuck Norris is Lawrence. <laughs> Good, but and and again, you know, back to Wallace. It, his critique, I think, holds. That that not he's wrong about the movie because it's much better than he says. Mm-hmm. But that the way in which the way in which careers and um, you know market driven uh, motivations affect yeah, know, and how they have to like, potentially if, if, be art. If something needs a lot, if a production needs a lot of money, then it has to appeal to a broader audience, which means that it has to be kind of dumbed down and t- the. Antithesis right. to that, to me, is like, well, what about the fucking Wizard of Oz? I mean, that wasn't exactly like a shoestring thing, and you know, I think that's right, you know, right. That, like, well, kind of open, right, you know, I'm let, let's right. Well, I there's, a, t- there's a tipping point. up to like yeah. yell at him, but yeah, right. Well, I mean, I think there's a tipping point in all popular culture where, uh, where there's a difference between just because something was popular in the 1930s, that doesn't mean that the equivalent of popular in 1992 or 2021 yeah. so like you know their popular culture as we know it really only kind of started in the whatever the late 70s early 80s and you know what i mean and there was a time when yeah, the restrictions morphs. yeah so it, 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 you can't really compare the popularity of wizard of oz to to something that is mass because they they were simply weren't thinking on that level of mass culture it was mm-hmm. they were still hemmed in by the restrictions of quality even though they were thinking even though they were profit motivated it was almost like the human the, you know the, the the audience that they were aiming for didn't even hadn't even gone to the place of uh decay that you know the, the contemporary audience ha- is at now you know what I'm saying? That like mm-hmm. the idea that they could, you can make something so schlocky in order to just, you know what I mean? It'd be like, you can't, you, they couldn't have even made Doritos in the 1930s, even <laughs> if they, 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 you know what I yeah, mean? Like yeah, they didn't yeah. even have, they didn't even have the chemicals. They, even if they had dreamed of it, they couldn't have made it. You know what I mean? Like they, they had to, even if they made a version of Doritos, 
they would have tasted like the best Doritos ever. You know what I'm saying? So like the way in which mass culture operates, they didn't even have the infrastructure to be able to, to, uh, to create mass culture that we have to put up with. So, but again, you know, it's, um, I think that the thing was that, that he was kind of zeroed in on was the, it was really kind of the humor of it is just that not only was it a big budget movie that was about, you know, profit and everything, mm-hmm. but the, 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 the main character himself, the star of the film d- demanded that the whole narrative be changed in this kind of absurd way, just so just for his own career to have like a, you know, a, a coming out as a, as a good guy. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and so that's kind of funny. Like I noticed that, you know, he never kills anyone. That, like when that scene yeah. when he's shooting the cops, he doesn't, none of them die. And, and so it's like, you know, someone was like, you know, like Arnold's people were like, we don't want Arnold killing cops because that, you know, you know, he's, he's going to star in kindergarten cop and we yeah. don't want, you know what I mean? Or whatever. Um, right. Um, but I mean, my overall take is just, you know, it was, it's kind of like, you know, and again, I've, I've, the other films we're talking about, I've watched, you know, over 20 times at least. Mm-hmm. And I've watched this only once. So I can't, I can't give you a, you know, a deep, you know, deep no, thoughts no, no. on it other well, okay. than to just say how, imp- how impressed I was and how kind of sad it is that, that we can't expect more from these big budget movies now. And that we can't, yeah. and it's not even that, it's not even that they're all so bad. Cause I mean, I haven't really seen any of them. I'm sure that some of them are better than others, mm-hmm. but that, it, that, you know, this film, it, um, you know, it, it adhered to all of the structures of old fashioned storytelling. There weren't any character holes. There weren't any narrative holes. I mean, it was, there were some, you know, Spielberg esque cheesy moments, but it was yeah. all lucid. The story was lucid. It, there was a, you know, um, you know, it, it framed the, the narrative. It, it, there was character development. There was, you know, friction. It, it had all of the things that, and, you know, you really, you really have to admire that in, in um, as someone for me who's not like a big pop culture guy. You know, you have to admire someone like James Cameron, who who's art, who's you know an artist working on that kind of huge level, who can you know give you the goods and then at the same time um, adhere to classic structures. And you know, it's something. It's easy to be a you know, it's easy to be an artist's artist, but sometimes you gotta take a step back and appreciate you know popular artists who are able to to kind of uh, thread that needle of quality and also. Um, something made for mass consumption and um, yeah and it's too bad that we don't have that we can't have more of that now Um, you know so your your friend had said yeah your your friend had said that uh, at least two of those films were better than uh, that Terminator 2 was better than two of those he said that he said that T2 is hands down better than Lewin Davis and uh, Summer Sam. Do you? Um, And but he's where? Where are you on any of that? Well, I mean, you know, I'm again, like I'm, I I can only get so far outside of my comfort zone with stuff. Uh, I read you. So it's like, you know, like I'm not, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna have a that thing where I where I realize what's great about, you know, 
whatever the Transformers like Madonna or, or like yeah. why Andy Warhol is better than you know Vermeer type thing like I'm mm-hmm. I'm always going to just be like kind of like con, you know conservative view on art and stuff like that mm-hmm. but but uh, you know but I'm happy that I was but again, it's like I've been watching, I have this collection of DVDs and I have almost all of the movies that are my favorite movies. And I just sit around and watch them over and over again, yeah. which is why I can talk about them. But at the same time, it's like, it's good to, it's good to be exposed to, to new stuff always. And, yeah. um, and to, you know, to be surprised by something. And, um, I, you know, now I'm going to, I think maybe go and watch the first one and stuff. Um, well, on, you know. on that note, actually, um, uh, I, I, can you just uh, remind us again, your, your new album is, um, it comes out in June and it's, uh, it's called Friends in High Places. Friends in High Places. And, and what's a good place for people to go to, to hear it? Oh, you know, Spotify. Spotify. And you had wherever, a, wherever you stream. You have a great uh, you have a great single that just uh, came out a few weeks ago, boozing and losing. Um, yeah, that it's about and, time. It's about time for that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Turner, thanks so much for for being on the on the show. Um, yeah, thank you, man. This is this is super fun. Absolutely, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Bleeding through my eyes, doing. Can trying to devise a simple plan. Last night's repose is breathing through my clothes as a bitter wind blows throughout the land. Yesterday's gone up in smoke, tomorrow's hard. Just move.